Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. All right. Can you guys stand? And I'm going to read the passage for today. And if you're new to Oak City Church, at the end of this, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to say, thanks be to God. And um, we do this because God's words mean more than our words. And uh, to express that we're grateful that he's given us his words. So this is Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not, only give, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. We're in a series in uh, the book of Romans, and so um, I want to, and this is the second week on this same passage, and I want to explain the difficulty of, of this morning and this sermon, because this is a heavy passage it's really the third week in an extended passage, and it's meant, it's meant to be heavy, and it's got to be heavy. And so Romans is about the good news of the gospel, but the good news is really only good news to the extent that you understand how bad the bad news is, and, um, and that like we've made a mess of the world, and, and God needs to fix us. And so he's telling us how bad the bad news is, and this passage convict, should convict every single person in the room like deeply, you know? But at the same time, the passage deals with the difficult su- subject of homosexuality that I want to deal with gently because I think the church has dealt with it poorly in the past and, and actually put more weight on it than it has on other, other parts of the passage. Um, you know. And so like, I want to deal with that carefully while, while not minimizing the heaviness of the whole thing. Um, and yet, dealing with the heaviness of the whole thing, I don't really want to leave us there because the book of Romans is carrying us forward to the gospel. So that's the trick for me all week is, is trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, speak this thing appropriately and accurately. And if I had to summarize it, having spent, you know, weeks in this passage now, the pursuit of our desires is killing us, and he's the only one that can rescue us. That's probably how I would summarize these last few weeks and this week. So let me back up just a little bit and review the past few weeks and where, where this passage has been. And last week, I, I broke it down like this, that it, it moves from revelation to rejection to replacement to wrath. And so these passages are, have a little bit of a parallel to Genesis 1 through 3, and we see that in both of them. So there's revelation. In this passage, it says that God made his divine nature and eternal power known to all men. In Genesis, God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. There's rejection. Um, in this passage, Paul says that we have suppressed the truth. In um, Genesis, they, you know, they just decided, well, we're going to go ahead and eat from that tree, even if God says it's going to lead to death. There's replacement. And, um, and so, like, we're consumed with identity right now as a culture. And I wonder if we're not so consumed with it because of our abundance. Like, if you remember, uh, remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs? I don't know if they still teach that. Does nobody remember that? Okay. Um, but it's like this pyramid, and at the bottom are your safety needs and your basic physical needs. And when those are met, you move up to self-actualization. And it seems like 
especially in our, in, our, in our abundant culture, we've got these things taken care of, and we're up here trying to figure out who we are, and we have the freedom to do that, so we're consumed with it. But our identity really is who God made us to be and who he tells us that we are. And last week, a lot of what I tried to communicate was when, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, like instantly, they lost their sense of who they were in the Lord. They lost their sense that they were good because they weren't good anymore, and they'd, they'd stopped trusting that God really loved them. And so then it was like a big bang of idolatry and trying to figure out um, who we are, and we're living in that. And it's a replacement. In this passage in Romans, we've replaced the truth of God for a lie, and we've worshiped the created thing rather than the creator. And wrath is that God has given us over to those um, desires. Uh, and I think we think of wrath as something that is like in the future. Um, one of the things over the past few weeks in studying this, someone pointed out John three thirty six, and, and Jesus says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And this passage in Romans indicates something similar, that we're in wrath right now. Like God has given us over to these desires, um, and it is, uh, a form of wrath. And so this week, we've, the past few weeks, we've gone through revelation or rejection or replacement. This week is really about wrath and what God's given us over to and what it's doing to us and what we can do about it. Um, I heard a great illustration. I listened to a few sermons this week. One of them was um, J.D. Greer from Summit, and so I'm just stealing this, but it was, uh, he said it would be like if if the earth said to the sun, I want to be the center of the solar system. Like that's what happened in the fall. And the sun said, go for it. And if the earth tried to hold together the solar system, the whole thing would unravel in an instant. And so that's a bit of what we're watching. And another person I was talking to this week um, said that she heard someone say it this way, that the punishment for sin is more sin. <laughs> like God giving you over to more sin. So this is in, there's got, Paul has three paragraphs. It's three sections. The first section deals with the idol of sex. Um, and just sex in general. The second section deals with the issue of homosexuality, and the third section just has a laundry list of sins um, that it is going to find each of us. So this first section, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Impurity is a word that indicates a sexual impurity. That's the connotation that comes along with it. And to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, um, again, gets to the, that indicates that the paragraph is talking about um, sexual sin, and because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So, but before, uh, what I want to do for a few minutes is just talk about the centrality of sexuality in the Bible and what God has clearly stated throughout his, in, his intent for sexuality and his purposes beyond what we typically see. So you go to Genesis chapter one and God creates, um, he creates, and it says it right in the first chapter, right? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so we're seeing sexuality right at the beginning. It says he blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so sex is right there in the first chapter. The second chapter, he kind of, I think, breaks down how the first chapter happened, you know, and it says he created Adam um, and he put him in the garden to work and to keep it, gave him the command, and then said it's not good for Adam to be alone. So I'm going to make Helper form. Helper is not, we see it as a weak word. Um, it's not in the Bible. It's most often used to describe God himself. And it's a way of indicating that Adam could, had a job to do that he could not do. And so he needed someone to help him do that. And it's kind of ironic that guys, some guys, this is what I hear, have trouble asking for help. And that's all the way from the beginning of the Bible. And, um, and so he creates Eve and brings her to, uh, to um Adam, and says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And so, you know, right, right in there, they become one flesh. And part of that one flesh is uh, consummating the marriage, having sex, and, and making babies, you know. And so in culture, the primary purpose, I think right now in culture, the primary purpose of sex is personal pleasure. Uh, but biblically, it's in there the whole time, and there's so much more to it, and it's union, it's unity, and it's the miraculous, powerful capacity to create life, which we don't see as strongly because we've separated, um, we separated the two. Now, this, this pattern, Jesus, when he's asked about divorce, he goes back to this. He goes back to Genesis, and he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, so therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. 
and what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus affirms that this is, this is the order that God uh, created when he's asked about it. Um, you read through Scripture, and God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament between God and Israel and the New Testament between Christ and the church, uh, the picture for that is marriage. And heaven is represented by a wedding feast. And so he uses this picture throughout. And Hosea, which is one of the craziest books in the Bible, maybe I'll just preach through Hosea sometime uh, for fun, because he, he has a prophet, Mary, a woman that is going to be unfaithful to him, to Hosea, so that Hosea will understand what it's like for, for God the Father to be married to Israel, who has been unfaithful to him and worshipped all these false gods. And at one point, um, God says about Israel, he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I'm going to win her back. And there I'll give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, and she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. And so there's that picture of marriage used to describe God's relationship with his people. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. And so he's comparing heaven to, to be like a wedding feast. In Ephesians, Paul says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. And so marriage is this picture um, of God's relationship with his people. And finally, in Revelation 19, let us re rejoice and exalt and uh, give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I say all that to say, like, we think maybe I'll find somebody, you know, that will spend the rest of their life with me and I can be a companion with. God has cosmic purposes to our marriages. And we tend to think about marriage as like, I'm going to find somebody that I'm happy with and then we're going to spend some time together and see if we think we can keep the happiness thing going. But God's got a purpose that's far greater than that um, for, uh, for our marriages. I think God, with, with sex, sex is how a couple consummates their marriage. And sex is just, enough, God doesn't get enough credit for designing sex, right? Sex is the place where, where you experience an ultimate level of, not an ultimate, like a, a different level of intimacy and vulnerability with another human being. And it's not just physical, but it's emotional and it's spiritual. And his intention is that that's one person in your life that you're joined to like that. And it's not just for the purpose of pleasure. It's for the purpose of union and to, and to create life, that miracle. And um, we, I read some stuff, and it was in psychology today about the union piece of it. And we know more about this than we've ever known, that when, when a couple has sex, there's a, uh, I don't know, it's a hormone, the oxytocin chemical, I don't know what, is released. And it makes the couple feel closer together. But they said it also prevents you from becoming close to other potential mates, and it helps you maintain fidelity. And they went through describing how this works. And that's in God's design uh, for sex. Um, one, one guy I read, one pastor I read said sex is, and I want to be careful with this, but he says it's like a sticky note. And so a sticky note, like you use a sticky note too many times and it becomes less sticky. And that's how it's designed. And God can restore this stickiness. Like remember a guy talking about sex years ago and quoted, I, I can't remember what Old Testament, Joel, God will restore what the locusts have eaten. And God can do that. But there's a design to it, and union is a part of that design. And yet, the satisfaction of sex is imperfect and temporary in the best of situations. And I think part of that's because it points something beyond itself to union with God. I want to be careful with this because um, there's a big to-do about an article that appeared in the Gospel Coalition and that I tried to understand a little bit of, and I think the guy took this analogy too far. And I think that was the problem because this analogy has been used for the 2,000 years of the church. But I think... If heaven is a wedding feast, and at a wedding feast a couple consummates their marriage, there's something in the pleasure of sex that is meant to point towards this is what it's going to be like to be with God, that it's like this unbelievable experience. All of this is why we, we can't mess with it. <laughs> like, when we take sex out of its context, like, we mess with the picture and the vision and the message that is, that's implicit within it. But, that, but we've messed with it. Um, one pastor said, we put our desire for sex over God's design for sex. Another one wrote this, our culture is such 
that sexual activity is viewed as the most direct path to personal fulfillment and self-realization, to being truly human and fully alive. So deep-seated is this belief that most people today think that to deny yourself sexual experiences is to undermine your own humanity. And that is kind of the spirit of the day, isn't it? Um, this guy went on and said, try floating the idea of sexual chastity to a group of college freshmen or young urban professionals and see what kind of looks you get. And we've messed with it. So let me just, let me just sort through, a, talk through a few things. Um, pornography is a, a $96 billion industry globally annually. For perspective, Hollywood grosses $26 billion globally on its movies. Four times as much for pornography. Pornography, like, this is the message that comes from culture is that sex is just an appetite, like food or water, and you have to satisfy your appetites or something bad's going to happen, but, but it's not. And it, God made it to be more than that. And pornography is not about um, just satisfying an appetite. Uh, it's about identity. Pornography is the fantasy that someone that, that looks like that would want someone like you. Uh, and it's dangerous to give in to that lie over and over again. Um, one of the things that I've heard about in the last few years, the latest innovation in pornography is a site called OnlyFans, where guys subscribe to a woman's page, and then the woman will send messages to the guy. And they said, like, the women get personal with these guys, personal to the point where they know their kids' names, which is so, like, whoa. <laughs> and the women have staffs that actually write the messages. So it's this, um, it's this fake intimacy, and, but intimacy is what... what we're after. Uh, porn is, is ruining our kids' abilities to have real relationships. Um, part of the, re I mean, this is a whole rabbit trail to go down to. There's a, um, I saw uh, an interview with a woman that worked as a, she worked as a stripper for a number of years, and she talked about how she realized that she was being disembodied because her body was just a tool to make money, and the way that, that she was letting that happen, and it, um, sex is meant to put those things together, but in, it was tearing those things apart. Uh, um, one, one guy commented, and this was so great, he, he talked about Jesus' words that uh, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. And he said this, your sexual integrity is so precious that it isn't even to be violated in the privacy of someone else's mind. Your sexual integrity is so precious to God that it isn't to be violated even in the privacy of someone else's mind. Um, sex outside of marriage. You know, saying that you should save sex for marriage is, is the minority opinion these days. And so I just read a little bit about that. I read a bit about Tinder and uh, how, how that's used as a hookup site. And there's like a terminology that guys will meet a woman on Tinder and she is a Tinderella. Like that's a term now. Um, and and it, it seems like I've seen a lot the last few weeks and months about body counts, which is the number of people that you've slept with you know, and, and people using that with pride. And yet, I read this one thread on Twitter where a guy who was successful and good-looking guy and probably had no problem in, in um, finding women to be with him, and he, he just talked about how, it, like, at the end of that, it was all the same, and it was is empty, and he regrets it. And then in the responses, just a bunch of people saying the same thing. Um, I tell my kids, don't do anything in the next 10 years that will mess with the following 50. Like, if you, what you want is a stable marriage for 50 years, a faithful marriage for 50 years, then be careful what you do in the next 10 because those two things are going to be related to each other. I found this graph. Do you have this graph? Um, I found this a few years ago. And again, God can restore what the locusts have eaten. But it indicates, and there's probably other factors in this, you know, but the fewer partners that you have before you get married, the more likely that you are not to be divorced after five years of marriage. And that's just data. Uh, but it's how God wired things to be. So, um, sex outside of marriage. Sexual abuse. Uh, there are some people in this room and that are viewing this that have experienced things that have marred the experience of sex for them because someone used them for their own purposes. And it happens all the time, and it's, it's something that's really hard to talk about and to find context to talk about. Uh, you know, but it's, God's not happy about that. Um, 
adultery and divorce. In a therapeutic culture where happiness is the priority, divorce is going to increase. Good people get divorced. I don't want to like, I don't want to throw anybody under a bus. Like, there's a lot of reasons for people to get divorced. But the increase in divorce, while we've, we've increased like our pursuit of happiness and the importance of it in our culture, those things are related. And so, you know, when we do that, we distort the picture that God um, has created. And so we've messed with we just messed, by making sex an idol, we've messed with his plan for it in so many different ways uh, as a culture. Uh, I want to speak about gender and what's going on with gender and the confusion about gender for just a minute. Because um, I think, my opinion is that the confusion about gender has in, in a lot of ways resulted from the fact that we made sex this giant idol and think if we can get this right, then everything is going to be great with life. And so we got to get it right. Um, and I, I put out a podcast in the weekly a few weeks ago. Um, it was the Confronting Christianity podcast, and it, and it was titled Our Trans Women Women. And I thought it was a really good discussion about that topic and well, you know, well dealt with. And so I would refer you to that. But I'll say a few things about this. I saw a graph the other day that said 19% of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ and 11% of millennials, but it's been 2.5% historically for the older generations. Either that means that there's something in the water, you know, and something's happened to us that has changed us now, or people in previous generations have really suppressed this, or something else is happening. And, and I think something else is happening. Historically, gender dysphoria has been something that men have dealt with more than women, but the, the rise in it has been much more pronounced among women than it has been among men. I think there's an element of social contagion to it. Um, but I think part of it is that we think sex is this cure-all. And so, again, if we get this right, and, and we have to pursue that. I'll say with that, I think gender dysphoria is a real thing. I think, there's, I think gender dysphoria has been around forever because we live in a, in a fallen world. We had, um, this isn't gender dysphoria, I guess maybe it might be intersex, but um, a woman who we were friends with years ago when my wife got her first job at, at Duke, and she worked in the PICU, but this other lady worked in the neonatal intensive care unit. And I remember her telling us, like, some kids are born there and the doctor decides what they are because the parts just aren't lined up the right way. And, like, that just stuck with me, you know? Like, we live in a fallen world and, and things aren't the way things are supposed to be. And this whole passage is getting at that none of us are the way that we're supposed to be. Um, but I don't think... I don't think the problems are anywhere near as prevalent as what we're seeing right now. I think being a teenager has always been hard. I was listening to um, an interview with a detransitioner a few weeks ago. And a lot of what she talked about was experiences that, a lot, that every teenager has had. You know, puberty is hard. Being confused about sex is a normal thing. Our ideas of gender as a culture are limiting. And if you don't fit them, then there's a cost to it. And so now, now it seems like you have to do something about that. And there's an outlet to it when it may just be things that, are, that have been difficult for a long time. Um, and I think now we think we can fix this, and if we can fix it, we have to fix it, because this is the thing that will satisfy us, and I just I don't think it's working, and I don't think it's going to work, and I don't think the numbers are going to stay at 19%, and I think there are already some ways in which um, the, the swimmer at Penn who won the Ivy League and the NCAAs, but then people are like, this isn't fair. Like, it's not fair to the women to have to swim against the trans women that's had the benefit of testosterone. I think that stuff is going to, in interviews with the detransitioner, like the one I listened to a few, a few weeks ago, um, you know, I think, I think there's, that pendulum is going to swing back a bit, um, and so there's a few thoughts that I have about, about what's going on with gender right now um, in our culture. Now, the next paragraph, um, God deals with, with homosexuality, or Paul deals with homosexuality. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Uh, I, I think it's important to understand this passage in light of the pattern the Bible has set uh, for sex between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife in the context of marriage, and the purposes that he had behind that pattern. 
uh, and even the limitations of sex to satisfy us because we live in a fallen world and because uh, that intimacy points to something beyond itself. Um, but this passage is one of a handful of passage, passages in the Bible that clarifies that biblically, homosexual sex is considered a sin. And I don't say that lightly. Um, one pastor I was listening to said, <laughs> he said, I feel like this week I have a choice. I can either offend God uh, by, by distorting what I'm confident his word says, or I can offend some of you, and I choose you. And I resonated with that, knowing that this is an offensive thing to say, um, you know, in our time. I grew up, and so I'm 51. I grew up in a time before this was a big issue. And I grew up hearing that homosexuality was just a choice that people made. And that always rang a little bit hollow to me because I thought, I don't know who would choose this desire, especially when I was younger, because it came with a greater social cost then than it does now. And uh, I don't think people choose their desire, and that didn't seem to be a very generous or compassionate or realistic reading of the circumstances to me. Um, and yet, you know, there's a lot of desires that we have that we're told not to pursue. And one pastor I was listening to said, this conversation always comes along, or maybe almost always comes along with an unanswered prayer, which is, Lord, take this desire away from me. Um, that God didn't choose to answer in the way that we might want to. Now, all of that's led me to study this quite a bit over the years and these passages. And so I'm going to skim the passages. I'd be happy to talk more with you about them later if you want to, uh, but just as, a, just as kind of a survey of them. Sodom and Gomorrah is a passage that's used to talk about homosexuality. I don't think that's a great passage to use to form doctrine because it's anecdotal and because there was a lot more stuff that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. There are two passages in Leviticus that, uh, prohibit homosexual activity, and I think those are still legitimate passages. Um, people will write those off because there are parts of the Old Testament law that we don't follow anymore. And so I heard, I read it, it was probably about 10 years ago, in the News and Observer, they had an article where they quoted a professor from NC State who I think was a professor of religion saying basically, well, we eat shellfish, and the Old Testament told us not to do that, so we don't have to worry about this. And I thought, that's such a horrible biblical argument, and I can't believe they published it, and a religion professor would say it, but you're going to hear that argument. Um, the Old Testament law, you know, briefly is broken down into three sections, the moral law and the ceremonial law and the judicial law, and this is part of the moral law, and the moral law, like the Ten Commandments, are part of the moral law, um, and they're reiterated throughout the rest of Scripture, and we interpret them as still valued. The cer ceremonial law is like the sacrifices, and we don't do the sacrifices anymore because Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law, and the judicial law... I think the dietary laws fit in there would, would be part of like Israel being a theocracy and we're not, we don't live in Israel so we don't, we don't follow those portions of the law but portions of the law are still valid for us um, today but it takes some sophistication and some nuance to look at those. Uh, there's Paul a couple times and I'll just read one of them in the New Testament. Well, three of them including this Romans passage talks about homosexuality and so in 1 Corinthians 6 he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so much like this Romans passage, um, homosexuality is not presented as a bigger problem than all of our other problems. And much like the Romans passage, none of us escape this passage. <laughs> all of us are convicted by this passage. In this particular passage, um, an argument that will be made is that he's just talking about a practice in, in that time called pederasty, which was older men with younger boys. Um, I've looked at that argument for years, and I just don't think it's a good argument. I don't think that's all that he's talking about. Uh, people will say that in, in that day, they didn't know monogamous homosexual relationships the way that we know them in our day. And I just don't think that's true, because I think you can find references to them in other documents um, from those days. So that's an argument that's made that I don't think is a great argument. This passage in Romans is the, is the longest passage, and um, in some ways it's a little bit different the way that it's worked. Years ago, I met a guy, um, a, a professor at Duke named Richard Hayes, who ended up being the dean of Duke's Divinity School, and I met him under 
somewhat contentious circumstances, but he was, he was a great, great guy. And he ended up getting his New Testament ethics book, and he has a chapter that I have actually scanned and have as a PDF to send to people because I think it's the best treatment of, the, of these passages. And part of what I appreciated about him was, like, he was really just a, just a great, even-handed guy. But his, his, in the chapter, he goes through how his, his best friend from undergraduate, his undergraduate days, I think at Yale, was a, a gay Christian. So it was a man who was a homosexual, believed the scripture said that, that was, God was okay with that. And so he lived out in the gay Christian community for 20 or 25 years after graduation. He ended up contracting AIDS, and they reconnected um, later in this man's life and talked about these things. And his friend told him uh, that in hindsight, he feels like they, they warped those scriptures and that that community taught him to find his identity in his community or his sexuality more than in Christ. And they were getting ready to write about it, um, the two of them, and the man uh, passed away. But the way that he goes through, it's personal to him, and the way that he goes through the scripture, he says this, the genius of Paul's analysis in Romans lies in his refusal to posit, this is kind of academic language, right? Posit a catalog of sins as the cause of human alienation from God. Instead, he delves at the root. All other depravities follow from the radical rebellion of the creature against the creator. This is revelation. Rejection is the problem, that we rejected God, and then he gave us over to these things. Like the big sin is our desire to be in control of our lives, and everything flows from that. Paul paradoxically reverses the cause and the consequences. Moral perversion of all types is the result of God's, it's the result of God's wrath, not the reason for it. And that's what I've talked about in the last few weeks. Um, and so he goes through this passage in depth. People say that it's only, if you say that, it, that when the Bible talks about homosexuality, it's only men with boys, well, this passage includes women as well. Um, people will say that in this passage, when he talks about natural, there's a contradiction because what feels natural to a same-sex attracted person is same-sex sex. And so it's not unnatural to them, it's natural. Uh, but it's just not the, it's not the right use of the word natural. The word natural means against nature, and it's why the allusions to Genesis matter so much, because of the creation order. Um, and in this passage, like every sin that he mentions, heterosexual sin feels natural. Uh, envy feels natural. Greed feels natural. All these things feel natural, so they're not great arguments. I don't think the Bible is unclear about this. There are people, I think, genuinely, who genuinely believe the Bible does not prohibit um, same-sex activity. I think they're interpreting it poorly. And I think, I think there are a lot of people that know what it says and just doing something different. Um, John and I were talking about this this week, and he gave me a quote that he used um, a few years ago when, when he preached on this topic. And it was, a, it was a professor from Emory University, I think in Atlanta, their theology school, who said the, the exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. I think it's important to state clearly that we liberal theologians do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal to instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We, we appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us, that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God created us. Um, and while I am sympathetic to the weight of the experience of thousands and millions of people, and it makes this hard, um, that, that distinction of like choosing to trust between human experience and the authority of what God's told us is the question. And that's Eve in the garden looking at the apple saying, looks good to me. Um, versus what the Lord has said. And I know that's hard, uh, but I think that's um, what the issue comes down to. The people I have listened to the most closely are people that have experienced same-sex attraction, um, but then openly stated, I think the Bible says what we thought the Bible said for 2,000 years, and so they're living according to that. Um, there's a little book called Washed and Waiting that I got, I don't know how many years ago, by a guy named Wesley Hill, He's probably a little bit younger than me. He went to Wheaton, a, a conservative Christian school outside Chicago. Had been same-sex attracted. Came out, just confided to a professor, and felt like God was calling them to, him to live a celibate 
lifestyle because of what Scripture says. I mean, he talks about that struggle, and he's really writing to someone that doesn't understand that struggle, so you can understand what it's like. And at the time, like, conversion therapy was still a big topic, and he's like, I don't think this is going to change. Like, I've asked God to change it. I've tried. It's not going to happen, and I'm okay with that. Like, and so voices like that carry a lot of weight to me. Rosaria Butterfield is a woman who was a, a um, tenured English professor at Syracuse, and um, had lived with her partner for 20 years. She was writing, I think she was writing a paper trying to discredit the Bible and had sought some community input and a local Presbyterian pastor responded and invited her over for dinner. They just formed a friendship. It wasn't antagonistic, just a friendship. And then she read the Bible um, six, seven, eight times as she was doing this paper and became convicted um, about the life that she was living and repented of it. And God in some way did deliver her. She's now married and uh, she lives in Durham and is married to a Presbyterian pastor. Sam Albury wrote this book, uh, many books, but this book called Is God Anti-Gay, which he's refreshing right now. It's his 10-year-old book. Um, but he is a British guy, been same-sex attracted his entire life. He's a pastor and speaks a lot about just what that's like and what God called him to. Jackie Hill Perry is the name you've heard. Rebecca McLaughlin is the name that I've recommended. And so these are all voices that I think speak to this in a way that, um, you know, that I can't. I, uh, I mentioned earlier just the idea of desire and is desire a sin, and I do want to address that. Not just same-sex desire, but sexual desire for someone you're not married to or desire that leads to envy or greed or gossip or desire is a sin. And um, this week someone brought up, or I thought about the passage from Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet is without sin. And so he experienced temptation and didn't sin. So there's some line to be drawn. Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, forgive us for our sins, but deliver us from our temptations. And so somehow those are different. And we don't, we don't choose our temptations. We don't choose in this broader passage that I'm about to finish with, we don't choose the, thing that we're, the things that we're going to struggle with, you know, but we're all going to struggle with some, if not most of them. Um, and the reason that I didn't preach this paragraph separate from those other two paragraphs is because he ties them all together. And so there is a difference between being tempted and giving in to temptation. Honestly, I want to be delivered from both, and I think we will be delivered from both. And so somewhere in there um, is the answer. Uh, I want to read a little bit from Rosaria Butterfield about how the church should respond to this. And so these are her words. She says, first, we need to apologize for the gay jokes that we've said or condoned in silence. And I've, I don't know when she wrote that. Um, it's not long ago, but it seems like that time has passed, right? <laughs> uh, the church has handled this poorly for a long period of time, and the church needs to own that. She says, next, we must counsel people who have repented from homosexual sexual past and feel called to heterosexual marriage. We must encourage people who live daily with unwanted homosexual desires and feel called through the justifying faith to celibacy, helping these brothers and sisters to resist temptation, secure accountability, and rely on the word and on the fellowship of the saints to renew minds and affections. She says, we must lift the unearned burden of guilt off of parents of children who identify as gay or lesbian. We must create meaningful community from within the membership of the church to offer intentional commitment to members who are lonely and isolated. The church must demonstrate in everyday ways how we care for each other from cradle to grave. And she adds, in the LGBT community in the 90s, I learned the power of accompanied suffering, of standing together in grief as we face the AIDS virus. And she said, the hospitality, hospitality gifts I use today as a pastor's wife, I honed in that community. Um... And the church surely needs to do a better job of all that, not just to people that experience same-sex attraction, but to everyone that deals with loneliness and, and creating genuine community. What do you do if this is your temptation? Um, say this first, like, this is an issue between you and the Lord. Uh, I say this a lot. God put the tree in the middle of the garden and didn't put a fence around it because he gives us the dignity of a choice. And... And the church is not supposed to guard the tree. Um, the church isn't supposed to mediate that. And I think a lot of cultural animosity has resulted from the church trying to mediate that 
uh, for God's people. Our job, my job, is to advise you what the Bible says, to encourage you that this is God's best for you, and to trust the Lord and to support you in whatever discipleship calls you to. It has always seemed like a lot to me um, to ask someone uh, to be celibate. And yet, like, we have a lot of young people and a lot of single people at church for whom this is God's call. Uh, and I, if I were them, I'd be like, well, do you feel bad for me? <laughs> uh, and that would be a, a, you know, a fair comment. And maybe it seems like it's going to be that hard because we live in a hyper-sexualized culture that has made sex an idol bigger than it's been made before. Um, and maybe because we pretend that marriage isn't as hard as marriage is sometimes. And we pretend that marriage sex is more satisfying than it is for most people, and it doesn't have its own, like, lots of difficulties. Um, and uh, I read this is from Sam Albury. He, he wrote this. He said, Ever since I've been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this. The gospel must be harder for you than it is for me, as though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel is somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it's likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. And just as the cost is the same for all of us, so too are the blessings. Over the past few years of wrestling with this issue, this has become one of my favorite sayings of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. This is a wonderful promise. Jesus assumes that left to ourselves, we are weighed down. Life out of, with, out of sync with God does that to us. But as we come to Jesus, we find rest. Not just rest in the sense of a lazy weekend afternoon or a long sleep in on a day off. Jesus means something far deeper. Rest in the sense of things with God being the way they're meant to be. Rest in the sense of living along the grain of who we are and how God wants us to live. Rest in the sense of being able truly to flourish as the people that God made us to be. Um, we're called as the church to be, as Jesus was, full of truth and full of grace. Like I thought about the story of the woman caught in adultery, where they bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and it's the guys that caught her in adultery, and he says, you know, let he of you is without sin cast the first stone, and they all walk away, and he looks at the woman, and he says, are they not condemning you? And she says, no one. And he says, neither do I condemn you, but he says, go and sin no more. And we have to find that space. Um, Man, I thought in particular about young people that we have here as our church and, and if this is something you struggle with. And if I could speak into that, like adolescence is just confusing. Puberty is confusing. Like the, the messages you got about sex are confusing. Um, you could, I would go back to any time in my life. I might pay you if I could time travel back to any time in my life except from like 6th grade to 10th grade. And you could not pay me money to go back to those years of my life because they're hard and they're confusing and they're harder now and the pressures and whatever. But um, man, it's just part of life. And I hope if these are your struggles and your confusion that you feel like there's someone here that you can talk to about it. Um, this may seem hard, but like all through life, there are going to be things that are, that are going to be hard, but Jesus is going to be with you. Um, now let me move on to this last the last paragraph, and I'm not going to spend much time on this because I'm out of time, uh, and I have thought, like, I wonder if someone's going to say, well, why did you spend so much time on that middle paragraph, but not the last paragraph that gets, like, everybody, and, and the reason is because I don't talk about same-sex attraction that often because the Bible doesn't have a lot of passages on it, and I'm particularly just preaching out of the Bible, um, but these other, these things that I'm going to name in this last paragraph, the Bible talks about all the time, and I feel like I talk about them all the time, too, and so that's why I've waited this you know, in a certain way. So this last paragraph, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Now, a debased mind, the idea behind that is like a testing that results in approval or, approval or um, results in failure. So it's like a quality assurance control on a factory assembly line. And if the finished product doesn't meet all the design tests, the item is pulled as not working as designed. And if it works, then it, it it works as designed. And it's like God saying, your, your minds are not working as designed, but like I'm going to give you over to them because it's what you've asked for. And so this is what happens with a debased mind that doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. 
He says they were filled. He repeats that. They're full, filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Filled with evil. Filled with covetousness. Filled with malice. They're full of envy. Of murder and strife. And I'm reminded of Jesus' words that if you're angry with someone, you've murdered them in your heart. Full of deceit. I think we're probably full of deceit in ways that we can't, we don't even know because we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we're not deceived, you know? Full of maliciousness. They're gossips. They're slanderers. They're haters of God. They're insolent. They're arrogant. They're boastful. They are inventors of evil. And they are disobedient to parents. And then these, these last four words, the way that the Greek words that he chooses, I think might better be translated. Instead of foolish, there, there's no understanding. There's no fidelity. There's no love. And there's no mercy. None of us escapes the scrutiny of this passage. And um, I think it'd be easy to say, well, I'm not full of that stuff and just not know. I remember years ago preaching through Noah for the first time and there's a line that, all, that just always grabs me. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. And Ken said, has that changed? And I thought, wow, that's a great question. Uh, the end of this is they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They lead to death. But they not only give approval to them, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Our pursuit of, of these desires is killing us. This is the message of Romans, and, and only, by the, by, this is the gospel, only he can save us. It is Eve in the garden staring at the fruit saying, I think it'll be okay. And I think the weight of all of this is meant to drive us to a point of like, we can't we can't, this needs to be fixed, right? Like someone needs to do something about this, but we can't, do, we can't do it. We can't fix it. And I think we write it off and think, well, we can't fix it, so it must be okay. Or like we just, you know, sometimes you ignore the thing that you can't fix because it just makes you feel bad to think about it. Um, and his point is to make us think about it because God can fix it and God's gonna fix it. But I think he's driving it to that place. And I'll go back to the passage I went to last week. At, at Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul makes it really personal. Like, this needs to be fixed. Who will fix it? And the good news is that he has an answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God so loved the world that he, he sent his only begotten son. Uh, God gave us over to these sins, and yet God sent his son to rescue us. He pursues us and offers grace to us. And we're going to take communion in a minute. And this is a remembering how he has saved us from the penalty of sin. That his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us so that we don't have to experience the death that our sins deserve. He's delivered us from the penalty. He is delivering us from the power of sin over us and he's sanctifying us and giving us the power of the spirit that raised him from the dead so that we don't have to live in this. And he will one day rescue us from, from our sin, whether that be the actions or the temptations or whatever it is to live in a fallen world. I said at the beginning, we're obsessed with identity, and this is about identity, because he's, we see his, the identity that he has for us as those who are loved, and he will make good. Um, I went to a Young Life banquet about six months ago, and, um, and my kids are involved with Young Life. It's been a blessing to our family. Um, they do a lot of great things, but he, the guy that was the local director talked about how they will walk us, they'll walk alongside these teenagers as they're going through adolescence and trying on different identities to figure out who they are and having different identities like thrown at them every day. 
and they'll just try and get close enough to them so that they can encourage them towards their true identity in Christ. And our true identity in Christ is that the God who made us loves us, and he has never, ever stopped loving us, and he will never love you any more or any less than he does this second. And he has offered to make us good again. He has offered to take the penalty for our unrighteousness and to offer us the righteousness of Christ. And so I'm going to ask the band to come back up here, and I'm going to ask you guys just to close your eyes and bow your heads for a second. And I don't care what sin you've committed or are committing or tempted towards are convicted about the God who wove you together in your mother's womb loves you, is pursuing you. Um, if, we are, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He has the offer of relationship with him through what Christ has done with us. And as Christ said to the woman caught in adultery, um, neither do I condemn you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But go and sin no more. And he's not just said that to us, but he's offered to empower us as he sanctifies us and conforms us to his image. And he's promised to finish the job and to be with us along the way. The end of that passage in Corinthians um, where Paul talked about the, the list of sins is this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Father, thank you for telling us the truth about our condition, not just in this passage, but throughout Scripture. Thank you for not just leaving us. I mean, you gave us over to the things that we asked for, Lord, but not leaving us there and pursuing us in that and offering us a way out and a way through and a way past, Lord, because of what Christ has done for us. Thank you that you are good and that you love us. And that you've done what is necessary and, and promised uh, to make us like yourself, Lord. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.